So we finished Ephesians last week. I get an opportunity to talk about our, our identity um, as God's people uh, this week, and we'll be in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you guys heard. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be in verses 9 and 10. If you don't have your Bibles, you can raise your hand, and one of our ushers will make sure to get you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would love for you to take it home and, and read God's Word so that you can get to know um, His story and who He is through the Scriptures. So, as you guys are turning there, uh, so my family and I were at Target last night. Um, we, were, we were at Target by my wife's parents out in Gilbert. And so just demographically, you know that it's different there. And no offense to anyone from Gilbert. We lived in Gilbert for a long time. But it's different than Tempe. And so that's the context for this story. My youngest son, Micah, is four and a half years old. And if, um, if you guys have had him in children's ministry or anything, you know he has a very, some teachers are laughing right now. He has a big personality for a little bowling ball of a kid. And, and we're in Target. We're walking up and down the aisles. And out of nowhere, my precious child decides to yell, I'm DJ Khaled. <laughs> and my wife and I just look at each other like, where on earth did this come from? So I learned after the night, not everyone knows who DJ Khaled is. So, so here's a picture of my DJ Khaled. And then here's a picture of my son. Not the same person. So... Micah, for whatever reason, is infatuated out of nowhere with DJ Khaled, and he keeps up and down the aisle screaming, I'm DJ Khaled, over and over. And we're like, dude, inside voice, you know, people are like looking at their car, like staring at us, totally judging our parenting. And we're like, I don't know. I don't know where this came from. We're like, Micah, where did you hear this? He's like, oh, on the radio. Like, okay, we need to be mindful of what we listen to with our kids in the car. Noted. Um, then he stops and he looks at me and he's like, Dad, who's DJ Khaled? <laughs> so I'm trying to explain like the music industry and producers who feel the need to yell over songs and, and it's just not going well because he's four, but, but in his mind, he just thought this was like the funniest thing that he's DJ Khaled. So um, meanwhile, our seven-year-old is, is at Target um, looking for a Halloween costume. And what he's really into right now is, is Jurassic Park. So while DJ Khaled over here is yelling to all of Target who he is, my seven-year-old is literally walking around Target like a raptor, <laughs> growling. So you guys can tell we're really good parents, clearly. But it was funny because as we think through, as I was thinking through this, talking about our missional identity as God's people, kids are like the perfect example of this. Their identity forms how they play, right? Like there are times that my boys literally believe they are a train or a dinosaur or Black Panther or whatever the thing may be, right? We were, uh, I had the boys with me um, the, the afternoon before Easter, the Saturday before Easter this year on this stage as we were setting up, you know, some of the lights and decorations and stuff and they had their Black Panther masks and, you know, Wakanda forever. And, and Micah, again, is wearing the mask, and he's telling us that he's Black Panther, and he runs and jumps off of this stage, which, as you can tell, is pretty high. And, and my son, he has more of my wife's athletic abilities than mine, so he went face first. 
into the carpet, broke the Black Panther mask, crying. Yeah, um, he really believed that he was Black Panther and like the vibranium was gonna protect him. It didn't, it didn't help him at all actually. But they do this, my boys, my boys do this. I'm, I'm Batman, you're Spider-Man, I am this person and that informs how they play. Thankfully, with all of the boy energy we have in our house, um, lots of the families in our RC have little girls. So when they come over, it kind of helps to balance things out. But as we hear them play, it's the same thing. It's no, typically no longer, I'm Superman, you're Black Panther, you're Iron Man. It turns into, well, you're the dad, I'm the mom, you're the baby, your job is this, you're a chef, you're... And their identity informs how they play, how they view themselves in that moment dictates how they'll be playing. My oldest son is getting into soccer, and so for a while before he landed on being a dinosaur, he was going to be a soccer player, and he wanted a Messi jersey, and he doesn't even know what team Messi plays for. But uh, his identity, he wanted to identify with that thing. And so as I was thinking through, like, these silly examples of DJ Khaled and the Velociraptor at Target, maybe that's the sermon title, the DJ, DJ Khaled and the Velociraptor at Target, um, I've realized that this not only hits home for four and seven-year-olds, but for us as adults as well. Uh, it's, been, it's been a difficult summer, but one of the things that's been really good for me is um, I've actually, I, I've been going to counseling and talking with a counselor about some of the things that happened in my childhood. And I know that's not a very common thing for a pastor to say in a sermon from stage on a Sunday morning, but I can tell you it's been incredibly difficult and it's been incredibly helpful. Because for all of us, or at least most of us, our identity has not only exclusively been formed in positive ways, but through hurt, through trauma, through lies that we've been told from people or from culture, our identity has been shaped in not so helpful ways as well. So it's been helpful to talk through some of these things that I've lived through and ways that I view myself in the world in have that reflected back to me so I can understand areas where my identity, how I view myself, needs to be tweaked, needs to be adjusted and, and, and updated because of the truth of who I am in Christ, the truth of how God has made me. And just like a really hard workout, it's like horrible, but really good. And so as we, as we engage this scripture today, we're, we're going to read it. This, I think, is, is one of the things that Peter has in mind. He's speaking to a specific people. It's God's people who have been scattered, and God's people are, are facing persecution and suffering, and God's people are living in the midst of the, the Roman culture, which tells a different story about who they are. Their cultural story is shaping their identity, and Peter is saying, you cannot be shaped by the story of the Roman culture. You have to be shaped by God's story. So that's the goal today, that we would be shaped as God's people by God's story for the purpose of God's mission. Let, let's read in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says this, Peter tells his readers, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the biblical scholar and theologian Joel Green says in his 
incredibly helpful commentary about the book of 1 Peter, Peter has an intention behind this book. And, and he would say that this passage is kind of the hinge or the key um, to understanding what Peter is doing in this book. He's forming the identity of God's people. He says this, for 1 Peter, Christian communities must struggle with how to maintain a peculiar identity as God's people in the midst of contrary cultural forces. And just like in their culture, it's the same in our culture. We hear a story about who we are, about what's important in the world, about what gives us worth and value as, God's, as people. And as God's people, we have to wrestle with this to understand what his word says about who we are so that we can faithfully and accurately live into our true identity in the midst of the cultural context in which God has placed us. Michael Goheen talks about our identity as God's missional people in this quote where he's describing our involvement in mission. He says, mission is not primarily about going, nor is it primarily about doing anything. As the pastor of local and global mission, this kind of like makes me a little bit uncomfortable. He says, mission is about being. It's about being a distinctive type of people, a countercultural community among the nations. So in 1 Peter and throughout the biblical narrative, we can see from, from Green and Goheen that God is forming his people. He is speaking a true identity into existence in their lives. He's saying this is the reality of who you are as God's people. And it's a missional identity. It's an identity that is called to love and to serve others for the sake of the nations. It's called to embody this true story that we claim, this true story of the whole world. So let's jump in to see how Peter describes what this looks like to understand our identity and who we are in Christ. And he uses a couple, a couple sayings, a couple phrases here. Verse 9 First one, but you are a chosen race. So in this, I don't love the ESV's translation because we automatically think like an ethnic race. Clearly from the context in the letter, Peter is not talking about a racial group of people, one ethnicity over and above any other ethnicity. We can see throughout the scope of the biblical narrative that God's heart is for all peoples, that God's heart is for all nations. We see um, in the end of Revelation that when Jesus reunites heaven and earth and restores everything back to the way it ought to be, there are people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So he's not talking about one race over another race. His letter is addressed to God's people who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That includes Jewish people, that includes non-Jewish people, Gentiles, Roman citizens, people from all over the, the Roman Empire would be reading this. So he has to mean something different. What he's talking about here is a people that have come together in community because of God's love that has been given to them. This chosen people. A group of people who are brought together, who are being formed into a new identity, a new community because of their chosenness. This idea that God would pour his love on us and draw us into his family. He would adopt us as his own. Peter talks about we're all living stones being built into this temple, the very dwelling place of God's presence, so that the world can experience God through who we are as a people. 
I love the way Henry Nouwen uh, imagines this idea of chosenness, the way he describes it in his book, Life of the Beloved. He says this, long before any human being saw us, we are seen by God's loving eyes. Long before anyone heard us cry or laugh, we are heard by our God who is all ears for us. Long before any person spoke to us in this world, we are spoken to by the voice of eternal love. Our preciousness, uniqueness, and individuality are not given to us by those who meet us in clock time or our, our brief chronological existence, but by the one who has chosen us with an everlasting love, a love that existed from all eternity and will last through all eternity. When we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of, beings, of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness. That is the great joy of being chosen, the discovery that others are chosen as well. So this is not a portrayal of God's love as, as we're his chosen people, that we are the best, we're the elite, we're the ones with all the answers who get to hoard all of the love and blessing for ourselves in our own little secluded silos. That's not the image that Peter has in mind. This idea of chosen race, this idea of blessing in God's people throughout the scope of the biblical story is always for the benefit of the other. Abraham was blessed so that his family may bless, bless all families. The church has given the spirit so that we are empowered for mission, for the blessing of the nations. We are called to go out in all nations and, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so on and so on and so on. Throughout the biblical story, God's heart is always to use his people for the sake of the other. So when we get down to the bedrock of this truth that God loves us, in his love and grace and forgiveness, he has chosen us and invited us into his family, welcomed us into his family. This is for us, but not only for us. This is also for the sake of the nations. This is also for the sake of people who are similar to us in our city and who are different than us in our city. God's love helps to form our identity. It's the foundation that Peter starts with here. We are chosen by God. He knew us in our mother's womb and knit us together. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows our days. He knows the dates and times and boundaries of where we'll live. He has called us to these places on purpose. And from before we were born, he has known us and loved us and been pursuing us. That he has invited us into relationship with him and his people through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, whose life was sacrificed for us. This is who we are. We don't need a commercial or an advertisement to tell us who we are. We don't need a certain number of followers or social media likes to tell us who we are. We are chosen by God, loved by God, purchased by him at great cost to his son. This is the bedrock of our identity. And when we hear the lies, when we hear the voices of we are something else, we're not enough, we're inadequate, we don't know enough to do anything for God's kingdom, we're, we're not good enough, we have too much sin in our hearts, we're hypocrites, we're all of these lies that the enemy tells us. Remember, Satan, the accuser, accuses us of these things. This is the bedrock where we have to land. It's true. I'm sinful. I'm inadequate. But God's grace is so much greater than my shortcomings. 
And that is what motivates us in mission. That is the abundance of God's love that should be spilling out of us into the lives of others. Not that we are great, but that God is great. Not that we as a church are perfect by any means, but that God is perfect. We try to love our neighbors as best we can, empowered by the Spirit, because God first loves us. He calls us into relationship with himself. This is good news. And just like any good news when we go to a good restaurant or a good vacation or see a good movie, we can't help but share that with other people. It spills out into the lives of others. And so following Peter's logic, he says, not only are we a chosen race, but we're a royal priesthood, which in our context, I don't know about you, but I don't know any royalty or any priests. So this is kind of an unfamiliar phrase. We're a royal priesthood. What Peter's referring to here is this concept back in Exodus 19, where he gets most of these images from, that God's people are to be a priesthood, of believers. And what priests would do would literally be to mediate God's blessings to the people. They would be the mediator between God and humanity. So that's what Peter is calling us to, this concept of royal priesthood, that our lives are to be lived in such a way that we can show the watching world what God the Father is like. We can show them how Jesus lived, We can demonstrate the power of the Spirit through our words and through our actions in the context in which God has called us. We're responsible to live our lives not for ourselves. If a priest was selfish and didn't go to work, that disrupted the relationship between the people and God. So when we're taking this love of God and keeping it to ourselves, we're not fulfilling this priestly duty where we're called to go demonstrate to the world what God is like. This abundance of love is not for us to keep. We're not called to be selfish people. We're called to be royal priests who go out and embody the gospel wherever God has called us. And this is not a new concept. This is like not a new trend of like the social justice movement. This is ancient. One of the early church fathers, um, St. John Chrysostom, describes Christianity in, in this way. He says, this is the rule of most perfect Christianity. This is from the early church. Its most exact definition, its highest point, he's drawing our attention to this thing, namely the seeking of the common good. For nothing can so make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbors. There's nothing that we can do that can make us more like Jesus and caring for our neighbors. Not performing miracles, not saving the entire world, not bringing about radical transformation throughout our country. Caring for our neighbors. And this is the point in the sermon where standing up on the stage and preaching to you guys, I feel that twinge of conviction because it's way easier for me to get my kids inside than to like stop and like talk to my neighbors. I have neighbors that I don't even know their first names, if I'm honest. We're not perfect in this, but this is what we're called to. We're called to seek the common good, to do little things like give $10 to kids who need some help with lunch balances, like show up on a Thursday evening with a casserole of something and eat a meal with people experiencing homelessness. Like show up on a Saturday morning 
at the Rio Vista, Rio Vista Center and give some food to people who need a little bit of help. Most of us probably won't do these big, huge, miraculous works. Some of us, maybe. Most of us are just called to be faithful in little things that greatly demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. Maybe it's giving up a Tuesday morning and going to the Welcome to America Project's warehouse and just helping to sort donations for refugee families that are resettling in the valley. Pretty simple. <laughs> but things like pots and pans can make a tremendous impact in a family's lives as they're moving from a totally different culture and nation. We're called to be people who mediate God's blessings to others. We're called to be a royal priesthood who help to mediate this relationship between God and the nations. Right now we're in Tempe. Maybe God is calling you somewhere around the globe. Wherever we are, God is calling us to be a blessing to our neighbors. He goes on from there. So we have this overwhelming love of God in, in the fact that we're a chosen people, which should be spilling out into the lives of others through blessings and that we are a royal priesthood. And then he goes on, Peter goes on to say this, we are a holy nation. So again, a group of people, we know that the church is around the globe now. It's not just one specific nation, but a group of believers who are holy, who are set apart. Right? The image of holiness in the Old Testament is things that were set apart for a religious service, that, that they weren't contaminated. They were distinct. They were different than the world. So as much as we're called to be engaging in the midst of our communities, we're also called to be distinctive or different from our cultural context. We understand our identity in the reality of the true story of the whole world as different than people who don't yet know Jesus. Once we engage in relationship with Jesus, he changes us. He fills us with the spirit. Our lives begin to be transformed. We begin to be able to see the cultural idolatry of the context in which we live. And part of that means that we call sin, sin. In our context of hyper-tolerance, this is unpopular. But I don't know about you guys, but I hate it when at the end of the day, I walk in my house and look in the mirror and there's like the booger that no one has told me about all day long. Sometimes you need to say the uncomfortable thing because you love the person. If you love someone and you know that their fly is down, you let them know. When we see sin in our society, part of our role as God's people is to identify it as such. Because it's not cute. It's deadly. It's not harmless. The wages of sin is death. And if we're loving our neighbor... And, but we're letting them continue in sin, we really have to ask ourselves if we're loving our neighbor. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to, you know, like, make signs about how horrible everyone is and go stand on the corner or, you know, at ASU or whatever, but it means that we need to be able to speak truth and embody truth wherever we are. Most of us know that one person that, like, they just love Jesus so much that when you're around them, you're like, oh, man, I got to go read my Bible because this person's like, you just get that sense, right? They have a presence about them of prayer and faithfulness, and you want to be a better person when you're around them. That's what the church is called to be. That's what we're called 
to how we're called to live as a faithful presence, a holy nation that is different from the, the cultural context in which we live. The Peruvian theologian, brilliant theologian, uh, Samuel Escobar, describes it in this quote. I love what he says. He says, the very existence, so just the existence, the very existence of the church as the community in which an effort is made to live out the values of the kingdom of God, even when they challenge and enter into conflict with the surrounding society, is the witness which sometimes leads to suffering and martyrdom. By simply existing as an alternative community, the church becomes a judgment on those values that are opposed to the will of God that so often hold sway in society. In a racist, class-ridden society, when the church as a body, as a community, incarnates or embodies or fleshes out the brotherly love that crosses all human barriers, it becomes a question mark for the rest of the world. And the church sometimes has to raise a prophetic voice based on her understanding and practice of the word of God. The word of God should be shaping us in such a way that our very presence causes those around us in our community to question what's going on there. Why are these people so distinctive from the rest of us? Not weirdos, right? Still, the royal priesthood who blesses and doesn't just do weird, strange things that no one understands and like creates a divide from everyone else, but there is a divide. Because we are called to be a holy nation. And so we can feel tension here. Because for some of us, when I talk about the royal priesthood and we're going to bless the community and we're going to be involved in justice and we're going to seek the common good, we're like, yeah, that's right. And then for others of us, no, when we're going to speak the truth and we're going to define what's true for our society and we're going to you know, make sure everyone knows it, we're like, yeah, we need both of those things. Those are not contrary to each other. If we're only comfortable in one of those camps, then that means the idols of our culture have gotten into our hearts. We have to feel this tension. This is one of the blessings of having a body. That we do have those people that, for them, they want to stand on the corner and, and evangelize the world. And it is important. Peter talks about proclaiming the excellencies of God who has brought us into his marvelous light. For some of us, that makes us super uncomfortable, but we can make sandwiches and we can hand them out to, to homeless people and we feel like that's really doing God's work. Both of those things are true. We need both. We need to love our neighbor. We need to call out sin. If we are only doing one of those, this is an incomplete embodiment of the gospel. And we need each other because God's spirit speaks to us in different ways. I need my brothers and sisters to tell me when I'm not calling out sin the way I should. I need my brothers and sisters to call me out when I'm not loving my neighbor as I should. We need these voices in the church to be a faithful witness. And I love, if you guys were here about a month ago, Jake um, preached on, on John chapter 1 and he talked about alpha and, and evangelism. And he made this comment that I thought was like brilliant. He goes, when you look at God's plan of mission to use us to save the world, it's a horrible idea. <laughs> I thought, you're right. If, if embodying God's kingdom relies on me, we're in trouble, guys. Ask my wife. But it relies on us 
not individuals, a community who is empowered by God's Spirit, who knows deeply that they are loved by the Father, that that love is not something to only hoard for ourselves, but to give generously because God's love is abundant. We don't have to worry about it running out. We can share it with other people and there's still enough for us. These lies of scarcity hold us back. We don't know enough. We have too many insecurities and inadequacies to be of value in the kingdom. It's a lie. God's love is abundant. It flows out of his people for the sake of the nations as we seek the common good of our community, as we speak truth and call out sin for what it is. Because we know that it's deadly. It costs Jesus his life. And we do this together. We don't have to be Rambo running out there alone and, and, and tackle the whole world. We do this as a community, embodying the truth of this, of this true story. And I love, I love how Peter wraps this, this little section up as I think about my own shortcomings and the shortcomings of the church, not our church, other churches. Our church is pretty good. But. He says this, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's almost like he's saying, the proof is in the pudding, right? We know that this thing works because we're here right now. At one point, we didn't know Jesus. But somebody who loved Jesus told us about him. Somebody who loved Jesus invited us to church. Maybe today, this is your first time. Somebody who loved Jesus invited us to a youth group or some college event. Somebody who loved Jesus prayed for us and answered our questions that we thought were silly and listened to our deep hurt about why we felt like we couldn't trust God. Somebody who loved Jesus was faithful, and that's why you're sitting in these seats today, whether you know Jesus yet or not. That's why we're here, because throughout church history, God's promise has been proven true, that his word is faithful, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, that we will go out and make disciples of all nations, that as the Father has sent the Son, so he has sent us, and by the grace of his Spirit, God's mission continues. We just get to partner with what he's doing, which is incredible. It's incredible to see lives transformed as we live in community with each other. Marriages restored. People turn away from sin and idolatry and addiction and brokenness and choose life, abundant life in the sun. And we get to see this. We get to partner with one another and pray for one another and we get to see God move in those times where my faith is shaken and I need my brothers and sisters to pray for me because I just don't have the strength right now. They pray for me and God moves. This is not an individual thing. It requires individual responses, but we're invited into a family, into a tradition which has lasted from generation to generation and will last until Jesus comes back and restores all things. Oh, and just like John says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So as God's people who are chosen by him in love, who are called to embody this good news, called to love and bless our neighbors and speak truth to sin when we see it, we can have some hope. 
We know church history is not perfect. Everyone knows that. But we know that there's something about this that's compelling, that has invited us in, that has welcomed us. The people around us have loved us and invited us into their home and, and, and cared for us in moments of weakness. And this is what God's family looks like. It looks like this coming kingdom that Jesus will bring on earth as it is in heaven. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love that chooses us, not because we're great, but because you are. Not because we're good, but because you are. We thank you that you know us and you call us by name and you invite us into your family. Lord, we thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history, throughout the globe, who today on this Sunday are, are worshiping and, and praising you as well and embodying your true story of the whole world wherever you have called them. Lord, would you help us here in Tempe to be faithful with what you have given us? Would you help us to be generous because you're a generous God? Would you help us to seek justice because you are a just God? Would you help us to speak truth because you are truth? Would you help us to love well because you are love? And God, just like you, our kids look and act like us, would you help us to look and act like you more accurately? We're broken, selfish, fearful people. But we thank you that your spirit and your grace and your love and forgiveness are bigger than any of our sins or our fears or our insecurities. So God, empower us with your spirit to more accurately bear witness to how good and true you are in the communities, in the neighborhoods, in the jobs, in the families in which you have called us for the sake of others. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.